Okay, guys, let's get started. Um, turn into the book on page 15, preface 15. And we will just use the scripture that's in the book tonight. Um, all right, page 15. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on a level path. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus also says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John chapter 16. Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before each watch of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. I rejoice in your word, like one who finds great treasure. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. This is my only comfort in my trouble. For your word has given me life. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, next week we have a new teacher, Dr. Matthew Milliner from Wheaton College. Uh, the bulletin announcement you know, has a little description. The, um, but the order of the night will be the same, prayer, teaching, and then we'll finish with evening prayer in the chapel. So... Again, he's a very dynamic and excitable man, and he loves what he does, and so it is great to have him here.
I'll be excited. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you guys. Okay. Well, we're finishing the book tonight. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I, I mean, I, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and also, too, it helps, uh, it'll help us for the rest of the year as we approach God's Word. The last two chapters of the book, God's written Word and God's amazing Word. Uh, the written Word chapter is really helpful, and I'm actually pulling out of that chapter a few points that I think are very interesting. Of course, if you guys find some things that are interesting, please do raise your hand. But, uh, as this chapter unfolds, he, he mentions it and he writes as if we understand that God's word is mainly an oral word. So I just, I want to reiterate what we had originally talked about a long time ago. Our primary view of God's word is from the mouth of Jesus into the ears of the apostles, then from the mouth of the apostles into the ear of the church, then from the mouth of the church into the ear of the world. And so, um, God's word is primarily an oral word, which is, is hard for us because, again, we, we, you know, we buy the Bible at a bookstore, and we understand books in a particular way. But God's word is a living word, and, and when the Bible talks about God's be, word being a living word, living and active, we have to understand that living is not only a um, qualitative adjective, meaning like, you know, it gives life, but it's living because it's coming out of a live person's mouth and going into a living person. Now, I think I put quotes around to a living person because I think it was last week we realized that there's, there's a lot of walking dead people around uh, or living I can't remember how you said it. Living corpses or something like that. Um, but yeah, so we have to understand that God's living word, as we kind of understand it, not only means it gives life and eternal life, so it's, you know, but it's actually coming out of a mouth. So it's, it's alive. And that is, um, you know, another way to say that means it's not dead. And if we were to go back into the ancient Near East, you know, at the time of Jesus, he would understand written words as like a dead word, not a living word, because it's on a piece of paper or on parchment or, you know, it's, on a, it's in a document. And so that, that's really important for us. So again, it's, it's kind of, we're kind of trying to help us kind of rethink God's word, and it's for our benefit, because again, we're spending time with God when we are in Scripture, and God's a person. So, he's not an idea, uh, he's not just a character in a book, he's a person. All right, so within the Bible itself, though, there is, like, the oral style can be observed. And I put it in quotes here because this, is a, this quote, I forgot to, <laughs> got to footnote it, but it's from Dr. John Walton. He's actually a uh, retired professor from Wheaton College who specializes in ancient writings like documents and so you can understand the oral style of the bible from repetition within a passage so in the beginning god created 
you know, male, uh, created, uh, let us make man in our image. Well, Genesis 1, 27, 26, 27, it repeats, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's this repetition of over and over again. And of course, if you wrote that in your English class, your teacher would tell you, redundant, repetitive, edit. You got to edit this. But scripture is that way because it's oral. And when it's spoken that way, it's helpful for us to remember, to make a point. All right, anyways, so, you know, so that's a re- repetition within passage, use of formulas and formula patterns. You know, um, in the New Testament, we see this, thus it was written, and then something, or you've heard it said this way, but I say it this way, or even the word therefore. Those are all markers of orality where we're like, oh, we pay attention to things. And, and then there's a bunch of other things like, I, I use a really huge word, conventionalized patterns of content. I don't talk that way. But maybe in middle school or high school, you learned about um, parallelism. I went to a high school that actually used the Psalms in a public high school to teach parallelism. That's how old I am. Anyways, that was, anyways. All right, but all those things have uh, oral style to it. You wouldn't write it that way in English class because your teacher would say, that's not how, it doesn't fit the elements of style by, uh, what's his, Strunk? Did you guys, any guys have those when you were in middle school? It's left such a, it's left such a scar on me, I remember it. <laughs> Maybe nobody else had problems writing it, but I did. All right. But, the problem, but, but so what, what's great, though, about the written document is that it's, pre, it's, it's written down to preserve the oral tradition, not to obscure it. So again, as we read it, there are things that we, you know, we, just, we probably understand and we make note of that, but we just, we just don't think about it being primarily an oral thing. I think in the book, it already said that, you know, one of the first people kind of recorded reading out loud was St. Ambrose. Is that in the book? There's this great, okay, great story where St. Ambrose of Milan, people would just go watch him read silently because it's such a weird thing. People didn't do that. And now again, so this now, uh, okay, does anyone, when, when anyone was in public school, in grade school, did your teacher make you along with the entire class, read out loud? And then your teacher walk around? Okay. I don't know if they, they don't do that anymore, I don't think. They don't do that. Yeah, okay. But, you know, you had to read out loud. Teacher never trusted you whether you were reading if you didn't read out loud. Okay. And all, all I'm saying is that th- this isn't as, as weird as maybe, or as unusual as, as, it first, as we first look at it. But really, this is the thing I really wanted to talk about is, is our understanding of the written word is constrained by our modern society, our cultural kind of norms, our ideas. Because um, you know, today, intellectual property rights, we have copyrights, we have you know, publishing and distribution. 
And that's all about a text-dominant society. But back in those days, that did not exist. It was an oral society. And also, too, you know, just, just a word on that is I think we all, under, we all believe that a written document is final, right? It's, it's, it's proof. Yeah, well, back in those days, they, they, that wasn't the case. And we probably, within the church, again, this is somewhat of an old-timer question, does anyone remember the Red Hymnal? That's the one you grew up on, right? Okay. Then we got the blue one, right? Now we have the burgundy one. Okay. But there were, I don't know how many years ago, six, seven years ago, we asked, Pastor Music, we asked, pastors asked the congregation for their, like, one or two of their favorite hymns. Well, we had someone from the congregation actually copy the index of the red hymnal and then just cross out the ones he didn't want. So I went to go talk to this guy. I'm like, hey, one or two, man. And he's like, well, you just pick one or two. It's fine. I like them all the same. And he said, oh, okay, so then I, I noticed there was a couple hymns in there. I'm like, well, these are already in the blue hymnal, or the burgundy hymnal. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's got to be the red one. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, they changed a couple words. Is that right? They changed a lot of words. Okay. But see, this is what I'm getting at. Okay, so, it, it, okay, the fact it wasn't written down doesn't make it any less official to all of us. Because we all would have said, eh, no, 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 that's not right. Well, how do you know it's not right? Well, because you didn't, you didn't sing it right. It's not the right words. Not in the red hymnal. <laughs> so... Anyway, so the whole point, though, is, is that as, as we talk about the Bible being an oral document or an oral, have an oral character, that doesn't diminish the authority and the power of it. It's not like it has to be written down in order to have that authority. And in the old days, in the ancient Near East, the authority was never in the text. This is hard for us to imagine. I know it's hard for us to imagine. The authority actually was in the authoritative figure and, and in the community. So we see that a little bit with the hymns in the community. Like, well, you can't, you can't just go around and change words on a hymn. It'll be hell to pay. It'll be revolting in the streets. I'm not advocating that. I'm not advocating anybody to, you know, rip out pages in your burgundy hymnal and pasting the red one. All I'm saying is that we, we notice some of these things, these kind of relics in our own life. But as it applies to the Bible, we see this primarily in the preaching within the Bible itself in the book of Acts. They don't, the, the, the authority of text is the Old Testament. But the word, the preached word, is primarily Jesus' word given to the apostles, given to the church through the oral proclamation. So, yeah, the authority then resides in the figure, not in the text, but the text was there when situations arose that necessitated, 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 necessitated thank you, consultation. Again, I, uh, I regurgitated John Walton's words. So, 
in the early church, when Peter preaches, he's preaching from the Old Testament, but he's preaching according to what Jesus had said in Luke chapter 24, which we already kind of looked at, right? He opened the scriptures to them. I'm sorry, starting with the book of Moses, the prophets, and then the Psalms, which is uh, the writings, that's the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And he opened the scriptures to them. So when Peter is preaching, he's preaching what Jesus preached. The authority of the preaching comes from Jesus. And this is why in the early church, you have all these uh, like, you know, Jewish clerics, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these people kind of rebelling because Jesus has no, in their mind, no authority. And you see this in John. Because Jesus asserts his authority over one primary Old Testament character. Anyone want to take a guess who that was? What's that? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, writer. Writer of well, what we would consider writer of the Old Testament. Moses, yeah. Yes, but yeah, Abraham is part of that, but uh, the, you know, we call the books of Moses, yeah. So Jesus is asserting his authority over Moses primarily by saying that Moses was writing about him. It's a future thing, and now it's come fulfilled, and now he has this authority over it. So in order to read the Old Testament, so Jesus makes these bold claims that this written document is in fact about me, and let me tell you how that is. That's the preaching. And then the apostles hear it, and then they preach it, and of course in Acts chapter 2, 13, there's sermons in, in the book of Acts. You know, people, you know, they, they come to faith, and you know, it's 5,000 are added that day. And, but, so this is what's going on, is that you see this within the, in the text itself, is that there's this oral character, there's this preaching character to it, and it's written down. Okay, so the New Testament then. Why was the New Testament written? Well, it's because as time goes on, right? Apostles are martyred. They're students. You have to write it down to maintain that oral preaching. And of course, it's a little easier to see the orality of the New Testament because the epistles, Romans and Corinthians and Galatians, all these are in fact what? What are they? Letters, but those, again, letters meant to, yeah, be read or be preached in the churches. So again, I'm not going to really talk about letter, the whole idea of a letter or an epistle, but the epistle, and it doesn't take very long to read it to figure out, you know, grace and peace to you from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, I, Paul, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, it's not Paul's in the pulpit. It's some other person, you know, the local pastor in Galatia or the local pastor in Rome or wherever. Well, they had to do that the overwhelming majority of people couldn't read it. Yeah, right. So, so, but this is the point, though, is that it's not about them. Okay, so this is another thing, too. It wasn't as if they were illiterate. It's they're non-literate. That's a big distinction to make. And I'll make a, a common. How many people know how to code in here? Computer code. Some of you guys do, right? How many people do not know how to code? How many people who do not know how to code actually use a computer? 
How many people who don't know how to code use a computer for their job? Okay, excellent. If I need coding, who do I go to? The people know how to code, the specialists. In the ancient Near East, it wasn't at, they didn't need to have everyone be able to read. Just like today, we don't, I don't, I don't, not everyone needs to know how to code. But when you did have to have someone write down, you get the specialist to come in and take care of business. Okay, so th that's important. It's not illiterate, because illiterate means that kind of, it, it's, a, it's a lacking of. It was non-literate because they didn't need it. Just like I don't need to know how to code. I don't, know, I don't need how to do that. Maybe there will be in the future where I'll need to know how to code. Probably not, no, I probably won't have to be able to read then, just code, but because AI will read to me or something, right? AI yeah, will be going for it too. Oh yeah, that's right. Sorry. All right, stick, stick, I'll stay in my wheelhouse. I don't know anything about AI, but. Um, okay, great, so, so this is the thing then, is that uh, the, the oral word was meant to be read. People obviously listened better back then than they did today. And they were able then to take it with them, to hear it, to re yeah, receive it. So, um, so the writings was there to protect the oral communication. Now, re the reason why I say this is because how many people have, maybe you guys know that, maybe you believed it yourself one time. I don't need to go to church. I got my Bible, and I'm going to head up north. And it's just me and God in the woods. Right? I don't know, maybe you've said that before, maybe not, I don't know. I did. But this is a wrong understanding of, first of all, the faith, and then also the Bible. Because the Bible, from the beginning, has always been read in community. Or, when I say read, of course, heard in community. That's the biblical testimony itself. Again, I, I think it's said in the Kleinic book, in those days, you went, you, you went to go hear a reading in community, but when you read something, you went off by yourself. So the Bible was always read in community. Now, again, there's maybe sociological factors, right? It's too expensive, everyone could have one. Or maybe it was created that way. It was meant to be that way. Because, again, in the testimony itself, now, I guess I should have, maybe we, well, stay on time tonight. I, let me just, I'll just put it this way. Read the Gospels, and whenever there is a scene in the Gospels of, of Scripture being read, is it, ever, is it always by himself, or is it with the community? Spoiler alert, it's with the community. Then in the Acts, it's the same way. But there is one time in the New Testament where someone's reading alone. It's in Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch. And did he know what he was reading? No. So the one time you have somebody reading by himself, he didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah, right. Can I just be part of that community by hearing it live streamed while I'm sitting out on my boat fishing? Yeah, right. Okay, great question. So now the reception of, so it's not just 
the broadcast to the community, but it's the reception of it in community. Which, you would have to make a really good argument how that can happen when you're, you know, by yourself in the boat. I can comment on the Zoom with others. Okay, so then, then I mean, so legitimate over the, I'm using the 2,000 years of science to say to, to, say to, the, to the person who asks me this, research shows that that is in fact not the same as human-to-human -human community. So it's not the same, and it's not the thing described in the Bible. Yeah, I mean, like, for instance, uh, well, there's a, a professor from NIU, or NIU, NYU, Jonathan Haidt, or Haidt? Haidt? Yeah. Uh, just read any of his research to kind of, that's probably a good place to start. There's a, I think there's probably other ones, but his basic premise is that um, the idea of, of uh, social media actually cultivating social interactions is, is a lie. It's, a fa it's false. I mean, insofar as to mimic the human, like person to person, it, it creates a kind of interaction which is fundamentally lacking compared to the human to human interaction. Yeah. So again, that it's not like it doesn't have community. It's a it, it's a less of community. And for those who believe it to be a community, he would actually probably say it's it's a false community. Yeah. Um, yeah. So okay. So then, how do you, how do we hear in community, right? Okay, so God says he, to, okay, so let's, we're going to do this a little bit later. Yes, we will. We're going to read the Bible together. We're going to answer some questions about, you know, where's Jesus in the story? Where are you in the story? What happened? Any questions? All this stuff. And as we're, the answers, as we hear the answers, we'll find out that even though it's the same word, they're all received differently. It's all received differently. And by those different, re the way we've all received that word, then that impacts how everybody else receives it. Right? So, um, we, we uh, I think we might do something from uh, Mark 7 on uh, Jesus opening ears. Sp you know, spitting on the ground, seeing his finger in the ears. It's kind of peculiar. But the whole point of notion of like, Jesus, like, unlocking your hearing or, you know, changing your life through a word that might impact somebody different than another person and how that impact was different, how that comes out then, it affects the whole group. And so that's why we need to receive in community and share in community. Yeah. So, okay, so at the end of the chapter, he says five ways the Bible still shapes the church. So John chapter 20, verse 31, you know, these things were written that you may believe and have life in his name. Of course, that's what we do at church. I mean, but um, read as God's word in congregational worship. That goes to what we just talked about. The proclamation and instruction is from one or all of the readings. So again, we talk about how our readings in the worship service, we kind of have an Old Testament reading. We have an Old Testament reading, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel. And I think John 
It talks about it being the whole counsel of God. That's important for us to, to really, even though the sermon is primarily on the gospel, there's always insights from the other readings to be had. Because again, it's just one word. It's all of Jesus' word. All right. Anyways, you can read all that stuff. But um, the whole point, though, is that um, there is the kind of the order of this. And the fifth one is devotional life for Christians in their homes is shaped by God's word. So, again, Jesus speaks into the ear of the apostles. The apostle speaks into the ear of the church. And then, you know, in the ear, into the heart, out the mouth, in each of those circumstances. And then from the church, it goes out into the world. But we, praise be to God, because of our modern technology and, and the Gutenberg Press, we have books. So we have a great resource at our fingertips then to maintain that, sp- that spoken word in our life. And so when I'm talking about the oral or orality of the book, I'm not maintaining that the, the best way to... to quote-unquote, read is by listening. However, I want to make sure that we understand that it's not about the book, like the ink markings on a page. It's about the word coming into our life and us living that word. So maybe I'll overemphasize that. All right, God, well, that's an amazing thing. God's amazing word. One of the things he says in this, this, this uh, chapter, this last chapter, is we need to approach the scripture like a disciple and not like a skeptic. Now, that could be misconstrued or misunderstood as we should never like, ask questions of the Bible. Well, we've already talked about chewing the cud, right? Wrestling with the word. And that is precisely what we need to do. And that's, in fact, what disciples do. Disciples ask questions. But they ask questions in a way that seeks clarity or answers. That has to do with how we approach the text with faith. All right, but the one thing that I just wanted to say real quick about this, though, is I think we've already made mention of this already. So in Luke chapter 4, John Kleinig makes a big deal about how Jesus, there's two stories right next to each other, which again, that's an oral oral convention. He preaches in two synagogues next to, you know, one after the other. The first time he preaches, they, they want to stone him. They're like, you're Joseph's son, you're blaspheming. They're going to grab him and stone him, but miraculously just kind of walks, walks out of the synagogue. It's kind of peculiar. <laughs> They're about to kill him and just says, and he walked through. The next time he does this, they, they praise God for it. But it's like the same word. Two different communities, same word. So this goes back to the reception, like hearing in community. One of them understands it purely as a human word. And that's why they say, this is Joseph's son. But if you read the first three chapters of Luke, you would know that's not true, right? He's, he's God's son. 
So they see him, like, just strictly speaking through human eyes. And so if, if it's a human speaking, that reaction's correct. He's, they're blaspheming a human is making claims for what only God can make claims to. But in the second half of chapter 4, they understand it's a human word with divine authority. And that is precisely how we are meant to hear the word. And I'll go back to that story of that boy at the halftime Glenbard North game who wanted to know what God sounded like. I'm like, well, he sounds like me. He just he couldn't get it. He's like, what are you talking? That's so that's so weird. But it's a human word with divine authority. And because of that, then that actually is a cause for uh, for us to be amazed. Uh, in John chapter seven, or I think it's seven. Could be. I mean, or maybe it's twelve. John chapter twelve. God speaks from heaven. And what does it sound like? Does anyone know what it sounds like? Yep, thunder. And Jesus says, hey, that wasn't for me, that was for you. I don't know, but I don't speak thunder. So God speaks in a way they could hear, but that's not what they needed. They needed God to speak in a way they could understand. And since we only understand human words, God has to speak in human words. So the fact that he speaks in human words is an amazing thing. That's just, just extraordinary, even though it's very ordinary. You know, it's just, you know, a three-year-old kid can read the Bible. It's very simple. But yet at the same time, since it's divine authority, it's, it's this amazing thing. And so, you know, there's the question that John Kleinig asks, you know, are you amazed at God's word? Right? And some people aren't. I mean, I give this, I give this uh, spiel every confirmation class, every year. I, you know, I talk about, I, I share dropping gold nuggets with you guys yet. So I have this, I have this whole, I, all the time, inevitably once or twice a year, I'll talk about how there are gold nuggets being dropped in front of these kids and they're just walking right by them. Because they, 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 don't, they don't see the gold nuggets that are being dropped. Well, that's what we prayed earlier. You know, that we would understand God's word as a treasure. So, you know, they're just kind of bored. You know, so they're acting squirrely or whatever. And that's normal. I'm not, I don't get upset about it, but I got to deal with it. They're kids. They're kids. It's normal. I work with kids a lot, so I understand. However, I also want them to grow up and, and say, God's word's amazing. I want them to say that. And that's part of my spiel. I said, hey, listen, I know you guys are, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, but in about five years from now, you know, when you're a senior in, in high school or in college, you're going to be confronted with the reality that you might think, God, this stuff is boring. Well, how would you know if it's boring? Because you haven't been paying attention. You won't, you won't even know. You have to, you have to be, actually be... Yes, you have to know things in order to say it's boring or exciting or anything. So, just trust me. They're gold, they're gold, they're gold nuggets in front of you. 
And so that's, that's, a big, that's a big question for a lot of us. We just have to, we have to keep asking ourselves, is God's word amazing? And, you know, the answer is yes. We may not feel that way all the time. But in a way to really, as, uh, again, Luke chapter 24, our minds might be open. It's not drawing away from God's word, but it's actually drawing further into it. I think some people, um, you know, think that's a paradox. It doesn't seem right. It's a sociologist, Brene Brown. Oprah likes her a lot, so just take it for what it's worth. She did studies, she does study on people who have been, like, hurt by the church, or by the, she, it's, she kind of studies a lot of religions, but she's, she's a Christian. Well, she is a Christian. And so she, she studied a lot of people who have, like, kind of fallen away from the church for whatever reason. But it's always some sort of, like, trauma or hurt. It's not like, yeah, you know, I couldn't get up in bed and I just didn't go. It, it, I, I don't go to church for this particular traumatic reason. Okay. What she has found in all of her studies is that everyone's initial reaction was to pull away. I'm never going back there. I'm never going to pray. I don't believe in God anymore. And what she has found is that the people who are very, like, maintain that sort of mentality live basically the rest of their life with that negativity. But what she's also found is the people who have actually experienced joy after this traumatic experience or after whatever, who, is, who basically have kind of coped with whatever's happened, it's precisely by embracing the faith, not drawing away. Now, they don't necessarily, you know, embrace the faith exactly how they grew up. You know, like, yeah, I was a Southern Baptist and this happened and now I'm a Southern Baptist again. It, it, it's usually something a little different, but it's, it's actually drawing closer to God, or drawing away. So it's the same thing about like understanding how God's word is that, uh, you know, there's, I have enough faith in God's word that if we dive into it, we'll experience all the promises that it does offer. And that's in John chapter 6. It's a 70-verse it's a chapter, so we're not going to read the whole thing. Jesus feeds the 5,000, then he talks about eating my, blood, or eating my flesh and drinking my blood. A bunch of people are like, this, no way. I'm, I'm out of here. And if you take a look here, and, and actually it's verse 67, Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? So people had this moment, right? It's, it's uh, this, this moment where they're just no longer willing to hear God's word. They're not amazed by this. They're, they're just, it's too strange. Or, in that instance, it's too strange, but in other times, it's just too boring. And so Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? We have to ask, we have to ask ourselves, do I? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So that's the challenge of God's word, is that, that, that question right there. Are you going to go away as well? Or are we going to dive further into God's word 
and come to know that A, Jesus has the, word, the words of eternal life and that he is, in fact, the Holy One of God, the one who bridges, who reconciles humanity with the Heavenly Father through his death and resurrection. So, there's a challenge inherent into God's word. There's, there's a calling within God's word as we read it, 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 and it's based on that question, will you go away as well? We have to actually say yes or no when we're confronted with Jesus. And so God's word, of course, is challenging you to not go, but to draw closer. And, well, you have to decide. Okay, we're going to read the Bible for a little bit before we go pray. We have not, I, I've had this on the, on the outline for the last three weeks, but I have not said anything about it. So you guys are, maybe have taken a look at it. In the, so Martin Luther wrote this preface to his, some of his writings that people had wrote down what he had preached and, and taught. And he wrote a preface to it, and it was about what makes a theologian. You could also say what makes a, a, a person who studies God's word, or you could say what makes a, a Christian. And there's three things. One is oratio, and oratio is the prayer of the Holy Spirit. In everything under there is a quote from Martin Luther from, um, oh, I didn't, I didn't, again, boy, I got to work on my footnotes. But his, his whole point is that we cannot enter into reading the Bible without the Holy Spirit's help. So we must pray for the Holy Spirit's guiding as we read the Bible, which we've already done. That's why we start, you know, page 15 in the preface is about asking for the Holy Spirit. Okay, the next is uh, mentatio, savoring God's word. That's chewing the cud. That's the meditating. That's the wrestling. That is the spending time with God's word. You know, you might say it's your daily devotions or your, you know, whatever. I, I did not put the quote in there, but there is a nice quote in there, and I think I, I, think I mentioned it earlier, is that, you know, one word from the Holy Spirit is, is better than 10,000 sermons. I'm just chewing on that. Um, so this gives you license in church to daydream, by the way. <laughs> so, listen, uh, I can't tell you how many times I daydream in church. And uh, this is a good thing, though. This is a good thing, okay? This is where I, so it'll be a challenge to figure out what you're daydreaming about, though, okay? And when I say daydreaming, I'm really saying meditating. Because we all meditate. We all meditate on something. Don't ever believe you don't meditate. That's, that's a lie. Because there's something always in your brain. As much as some people say there's nothing in there. There's always, that's a great dad joke. Okay. But the reason why I daydream all the time is because usually there's a good sermon. And I can't get two or three minutes into the sermon and then I'm like off on the races about whatever, whatever is being preached. And <laughs> I... Seriously, like, I'll be like, oh, wait, that's, that, that, that's a good point. That makes me think of this or that, or that reminds me of this person and that, and I'll spend a little time with it, and then I'll come back into the sermon. 
Has anyone ever experienced that? Just kind of coming in and out of the sermons? Okay. It's normal. It's normal. Uh, the only challenge here at St. John is there's such short sermons that when you, sometimes you, you don't ever get back into it because it's, it's done. <laughs> but that's okay. Because you have enough to really kind of uh, muddle over, you know, whether it be the rest of the day or, or whatever. So that's meditating. So you pray for the Holy Spirit. And, you know, again, I, it, uh, it, for me, it could be like the Old Testament reading. It could be a psalm. It could be epistle or gospel reading. It can be the sermon. It could be a hymn. That's often a lot of times a phrase in the hymn. So, okay. So you got prayer for the Holy Spirit. Then, you, then you're meditating upon whatever the word is. And then, this is where the rubber meets the road. Okay, so think about this. You're praying for the Holy Spirit, and now God has affected, changed your heart. Who's not going to like that? Satan. And what is he going to do? He's going to send struggles your way. And so then there's tentatio. I just, let's take a look at this real quick. Thirdly, there is the tentatio, testing, the anfaktun. This is the touchstone. It's great, that's a great phrase right there. That is like the... It teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's Word is. It is wisdom supreme. This is why you observe that in the psalm indicated, is Psalm 119, David so often complains <laughs> of all the sorts of enemies. As soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you. Will make you a real theologian of you. So um, this is where, I, I, can't, I don't think it's in this one, but... Um, uh, the devil plays the fool. He's trying to hurt people, but he, in fact, actually drives people back to Christ, back to God's word. So it's circular. So I pray, I meditate, I, I receive God's word. It becomes known through you. By the way, the word known is an intimate word. Okay, it's, it's a full body. It's not a mental known. Okay, so now you know God's word. The devil afflicts you. So what do you do next? You go back to prayer for the Holy Spirit, God's Word. So it's this thing that the devil gets caught up in the work of God. It's a genius way of understanding our life because it's realistic. How many people have despaired about, like, I'm doing everything right and all this is happening? Doesn't this also, isn't this Luther kind of saying, don't complain out loud about, unless, unless it's in prayer, like you shouldn't be complaining. Well, yeah, I mean, that would be one of those, um, I, I, it's not in this document, but yeah, like, so the whole idea of, like, you're not giving this, Satan any information. Right. Yeah, because Satan's a good poker player. Yeah. He, can, he can figure out your tells. But most people just already just give him your tells. So he, you're like, oh, how do you know all that? Well... Yeah, right. 
So, um, anyway, okay, great. So this is what the Bible does. Makes a theologian out of you. Um, we're going to read one Bible passage. Let's, because I wasted time talking about this. Jeepers, Christ. I've been meditating. Yeah, medi out loud, meditating. All right, so let's do Mark 4, 21 through 25, at your table. We're going to answer uh, just some simple questions. What did Christ do? Why did he do it? What was the result? Mark chapter 4, 21 through 25. It is um, part, oh, jeepers, wrong book of the Bible here. Um, it, it's, um, oh man, I can't, I can't see these days. Um, lamp under a basket. Mark 4, 21 through 25. I'm going to read it out loud, and then amongst yourself, answer these questions. What did Christ do? What did he do it? Why did he do it? And what was the result of it? And then where are you in the text? And then any questions? All right. Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. All right, let's figure out what Jesus is talking about here. Um, you know, what is Jesus doing in this text? Why is he doing it? What do you think the result is of it? And uh, where are you in it? And then any other, like, clarifying questions about, like, all right, so amongst your table, let's do that. Five minutes. All right, it's been four minutes. One more minute. According to my clock. I don't know, maybe. Has it been that five minutes yet? All right. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's see what everyone received tonight. Let's see, let's, uh, let's see what we got. Um, by the way, so a uh, variety of reasons why this passage was picked, mainly because I've been reading Mark, right? And... Uh, I thought to myself, this is kind of an interesting text because, well, first of all, there's nothing obscure in this. Everyone knows what a lamp is, a basket. Now, the measuring, I don't know why they translate it. it it's, uh, it's actually a measuring cup. It's like a, it's like a bowl. So some translations, I think, have bowl in there, maybe. But um, that's a little bit of a, I don't say it's misleading, but... It's more physical, more, more you know, uh, image-based. Okay, um, yeah, so there's nothing in there that's, like, obscure. The word propitiation's not in it, or, you know, some kind of obscure, like, theological word. <laughs> okay, in fact, what's the overarching kind of emphasis? Is it obscurity or, or clarity? Clarity, right? So it's kind of, I, I find it a little bit ironic because while he seems to be talking about clarity, it's not entirely, like, clear, right? So. 
is there a connection between the first uh, part and the second part between the light and then the measure? Yes, right. Okay, so good point. So again, we're, we're paying attention, right? So the first part of it is visual, right? A light, dark, light, dark. And then he, uh, in verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. You're like, what are you talking about? You're just talking about seeing something. And then he goes into pay attention, which of course is a hearing word. Pay attention to what you hear. Yeah, so the, the connection between the two is clarity. Again, kind of exposing or, or bringing understanding to enlightenment. I mean, like being enlightened, like, because the word enlightenment, right, is like, it's literally a light being light turned on but it is an understanding of things. So apply it to scripture, that's always through the ear and not through the eye. Okay, any, any uh, okay, next, anything else that somebody's got to say about this? We'll just keep it open-ended here. We won't get too legalistic about the questions asked. Anybody have any questions about like the measuring? The what? I think he's still explaining to the bullheads in the room that he's talking about the sower. Okay, so it's connected to the earlier parable. Yeah, that's true. It's definitely connected to what happened in before. Um, in fact, the, the verse 21, and he said to them, so there's this connection. The and is like a conjunction, right? It's continuing. Well, I mean, if you, yeah, the, the says, pay attention here. With the measure you use, you know, we measure to you. You know, if you just say, well, I'm just going to kind of go to church once a year, and, and that'll be enough. And you know, mm -hmm. Christmas story is nice, and maybe I'll go on Easter too. Yeah. But he's he's giving you his gifts every Sunday, right? Every Thursday, mm -hmm. when Advent let roll around every Wednesday. Yeah. Put your cup out and let it get full, and he's going to overfill it. Whereas he just say, "Well, I'm just going to come twice a year." You know, you're, you're, you're not, you're taking a tiny little teaspoon. Yeah. Let me fill your cup with faith. All right, that's good. John, what were we going to say? Uh, I, I heard a farmer talk about this parable. Because okay. Does any fool spread seed like this? Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So the so, sower is liberal. I think I think he uh, I think he's still talking about that there too, with how you measure it out. Yeah, the liberality of God. That's true. And and but Scott Scott is onto something here, and there's a little bit more character to that. Um, and then we got to finish because we got to go to evening prayer. Is the the notion of 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 hearing? So. If I have big ears to hear God, God, in fact, will have big ears to hear me. So it's not, it's, but it's first what Scott said. First and foremost, this idea that if we come to God with a teaspoon, God's going to fill it up. But you're going you're gonna to kind of be left wanting, in a sense. But if you come with a big measuring bowl... God's going to fill that up, which, of course, is going to be plenty for you. It's going to be more than you can ever imagine. But then the idea that it will be, uh, it will be measured to you. So the idea is that, you know, if you, if you come to God expecting a teaspoon, 
when God wants to give you everything, there probably will come a point in time where God will say, fine, have it your way. And that's going to that's gonna be a bummer. That's not going to go well. Now again, he does that to teach us a lesson, of course. He's not going to, you know, the idea that, you know, the moment that God lets us have our way is the moment we say, no, God, please, no. Um, but that's a reality. That could happen. But also that explains more will be given. Is that, but the whole point, though, is that when we ask for a teaspoon, God might take that, even that away and say, listen, I, I want to give you everything. And there's a story. Well, anyways, okay, great. Excellent. Question? Uh, I just, am I understanding the scripture right when I explain to my brothers here? Yeah. Versus now what I'm hearing. Yeah. Jesus is the light of the world, and he's telling me if I listen to him. That's right. You're right. He's going to expose everything that I need. That's right. And if I come with that measuring cup, listen to what I hear from him, That's right. from him and take it, then more is going to be added to me. Yeah, okay, Max, Max actually had this. This is good. So there's a lot more that we can say about this. So Max actually, this is really good because when we come, let's say I come with a teaspoon because I just don't know any better. God's going to, he's going to make that big. Yeah. So this is really important, and I, that's basically what you're, you're, in terms of that measuring. So God's going to expose everything, and we're going to be like, whoa, I have a choice of a teaspoon or a big measuring cup. Why don't I bring a measuring, big measuring cup rather than just a little teaspoon? Yeah. The other thing, too, though, this, I, this is hard for me to not say this. Um, so Jesus is the light of the world. That's from the Gospel of John. Whenever I try to interpret the Bible, I assume whatever's in that book of the Bible has everything we need to know. And it's not until we exhausted everything that I go to a different book of the Bible. So you are right. I just, I don't, I always, it's called a hermeneutical circle, and I like to keep it tight. So, okay. All right. All right, let's head downstairs.